Welcome to Let's Talk Talk, a podcast about language science for people who aren't linguists. Let's learn about why we talk the way we do with Let's Talk Talk. Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Let's Talk Talk. On today's episode, we're going to be talking a little bit about morphology. And for that, I can't think of anyone better than Thomas Stewart. He's an assistant professor of linguistics in the Department of Comparative Humanities at the University of Louisville. He's also an author of a super interesting book called The Contemporary Morphological Theories, and it's a user's guide. Tom, which he's going to be known as throughout the rest of the podcast, because we're big butts, obviously. Yes, so. please. Uh, no, so Tom, I, I mentioned morphology. I have a morphologically interesting word of the day segment on the podcast on several episodes, and mm-hmm. it's always a little bit oversimplified to talk about that. And I kind of want to ask you what morphology is. There's a traditional definition, and then there's what I've come to consider the field after fighting with a definition that really didn't fit. Instead of preempting it, let's go to what people usually say. People say that morphology is the part of linguistics that talks about how words are put together, how they're built, how you take them apart. That's good enough for a lot of what we're talking about, but it really is bigger than that. It's anything you do to the form of a word, to the sounds you have in it and pieces that you might add or, or move around to show the relationship between one word and another word or between the different grammatical forms of the same word. And what I mean by that second thing is like all these different forms like walk, walks, walked, walking. In some sense, those are all the same word, but they're clearly not identical to each other. So that's one, you know, when you say, what's a word? That's one of the hardest things to define. Yeah, what, what, yeah, under what section, under what subheading, you know, you're talking about words. Right. Almost as hard as, well, what's a language? Oh, that's another, that's another fight. The reason I'm saying it in these two ways is the stuff that's easy to talk about in morphology is when you're putting little tinker toy parts together like walk plus ed and they each mean something and together it's one plus one equals two and so this part means that and that part means that and you can just snap them apart and see how it works right but but there's other stuff that doesn't work like that and if you, in order to talk about morphology, you need to have a little more flexibility of mind to say, okay, what's the job we're doing? The job we're doing is we're showing relationships between words by any means. And so the relationship between man and men is just as equivalent to the relationship between dog and dogs. But in one case, we're adding a piece just like we did in walked. And in the other, we're doing a little switcheroo. We're doing that (laughs) sound in the the sound in the middle. You're getting the effect, but you're doing a different, a different formal trick to make it happen. In English, we say that that man-men thing is irregular. And really what we mean is it's exceptional. Most of the language doesn't work that way, you know? But, you know, but because people very often only think about the way English works, they say irregular. Oh, anytime you're switching stuff instead of adding stuff, you're doing something irregular. Right. 
you know no, I, I think yeah no i think that's that's reflective in a lot of situations in linguistics where you try mm-hmm. to force a standard on things like that uh where it doesn't necessarily belong and one thing mm-hmm. i've actually that you were just kind of touching on a second ago is that what i've when i was going over morphology it was a very traditional sense of morphology I only had some rudimentary stuff in undergrad and to me i always felt that morphology was trying very very hard to be unambiguous and i as I understand it, language uh, relies on ambiguity to be understood. So I was wondering wh- why such a hard sort of push towards saying, hey, these these things do this this way all the time. What do you mean by these things? Affixes okay. or suffixes, prefixes, sure. things like that. Yeah. Oh, OK, I just need to clear that because I, sure. I, I've got I've got different answers for different <laughs> for, for different reference. But when you say absolutely, the, the stuff that's really very clear is the stuff you're putting together like blocks. And and the problem is really the theory that's very easy to teach, you know, and that's what usually makes it into introductory textbooks. Right, right. The stuff that's easy to teach is the stuff that goes together like babies building blocks. And the other stuff, which is the stuff that's particularly interesting to me, is the stuff that doesn't work that way. What really, you know, kind of got me into morphology, because I, I, when I started in graduate school, however many years ago, it seems like yesterday, but it really isn't. But anyway, <laughs> uh, but when I started, I, you know, one semester I took, uh, I took phonology, the speech sounds, and I said, oh, this is it. This is great. And then the next semester I took historical linguistics. I said, oh, no, this is way better. This is good. And then I got a morphology class and I said, here you go. Here you go. This is, this is something that needs to bring things together. This is sort of a nerve center that's getting skipped over. Over. Mm-hmm. On the syn- syntax side, people are putting together sentences. Phonology side, people are making fun and interesting sounds. Morphology sitting in the middle here, touching both yep. of those things, but it's you can't reduce it to one or the other. And so it's really it's really in an in an interesting place, sitting between those two, let's say, superstars of linguistics. Right. Morphology, and, you you know, know. It, yeah, exactly. And, and that's kind of, that was I was going to make a point on that is that Please. you don't often hear people hear linguists saying, oh, I'm a morphologist. No, you don't. And I, I wonder why. And I guess we're kind of talking about that, you know. Well, I mean, I think that's the way the uh, that's the way the discipline has developed, that you've, you've got a lot of attention clearly, clearly on the syntax side. That's a that's right. a a well-developed theory in the modern era and phonology that folks have been looking at phonology going all the way back to the early historical linguists looking at phonology and that's really actually cutting off the timeline pretty late people have been looking at sounds for centuries if not millennia these are the big ticket items if you come into a linguistics department very often people are going to say are you an s person meaning a syntax semantics person or are you a p person a phonetics and phonology person. And what gets missed, among other things like historical, socio, psycho, that gets missed straight out. But within that same framework of the structural study is morphology. And very often you'll have a whole department that really doesn't pay more than one class worth of attention to morphology. And it might be taught by someone who is mm, really mostly dedicated to some other area of study, but has to teach morphology this time around. And, you know, it's and so it's it's really interesting. It's not prioritized. It isn't. And I think that's a sort of a 
something that's very strange that happens. There are not a lot of uh, interdisciplinary or intersubfield talking in linguistics. Like a, a really great example, I don't want to digress too much, but the one that strikes my mind is that in I know in phonology that recent papers have been concluding that maybe the critical age hypothesis for your phonemic inventory or the sounds that are possible to use within your given language within your cultural language are is is sort of acquired at six months when in syntax grammatically it's something like seven years old that's a huge discrepancy and are why are we not talking to each other about something like that especially when we have a whole subcomponent like morphology that holds some keys that maybe if we looked at we could find some information about. I wonder why there's not a lot of talk between these subfields, between these particular studies. Like you said, people are, you know, constantly like you'll get a syntactician that teaches morphology for a semester and he's just not interested in it. Hmm. Or only interested in the parts that play well with syntax. Right. Yeah. Leave leave out the, the you know, the, the dirty parts that they don't like. Exactly. Because you can just wave your hands at the other stuff and say, oh, phonology will iron that out. And, and, you know, and phonologists will do the same thing. You know, they're very interested in how do you get the right pronunciation of that affix in this context. And then they run all of the sound patterns and see, here's how you get it. But why that one? Why do you have that piece there? Phonology doesn't care. Phonology says, here it is. It's next to the other thing. Let's make it pronounceable. That's the concern of phonology. It's, it's like your neighbor never cares as much about your lawn as they do about their mm-hmm. own. Or maybe, right. that's, maybe that's not a good analogy, but it's kind of like it's, it's generally other people's stuff. And so if it's not taught perfectly well, you know, everybody will survive. Maybe that's a little jaded. So be it. <laughs> you would think, Tom, like you would think that. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a so be it kind of moment. You just have to hope that people pick up your stuff, read it and learn from it and sort of uh, it, it's it speaks to a, gener- a bigger problem of sort of in- interdisciplinary studies don't happen as much as they should, especially within, you know, social sciences and especially it, it, targetedly in linguistics is what I found because it, they separate so fast and they don't don't care about each other's disciplines. They don't care about each other's fields. Oh, yeah, I kn- I know. Uh, when, like, for for example, you know, if you want to do, if you want to talk about psycholinguistics, like how the mind processes language, right. you've, on the one side, you've got linguists who are sort of coming at the idea of doing experiments, and on the other, you have psychologists who are saying, we know how to do experiments, how do we get the language stuff right? And you've got these two different but really related approaches to the same field, and they don't necessarily collaborate. They don't necessarily read each other's material. So you have all these people right. who, who would call themselves, you know, on the one hand, psycholinguists who call themselves linguists, and other psychologists of language who are psychologists first and foremost. And it's like they are living parallel lives. And I'm I'm only picking on them just <laughs> because because I, every once in a while I teach psycholinguistics and I have. To to, na- to navigate a class that is mixed of right. students who are interested in more in one than the other, students who have a background more on one side than the other. And so you have to walk a delicate balance. I, I, I understand. And that's that's the, that's the uh, sort of the spirit of academia. It's kind of always been that way. And everybody always wants to be the savior of that and kind of push, push towards, hey, you know, we should talk to each other a little bit more. So I'm just kind of being Gandhi at this point for linguistics. <laughs> but no, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about your second definition of morphology, the, the, the less traditional one. And kind of, yeah, and I wanted you to kind of go over that a little bit more uh, in depth with us to kind of tell us why it's important and why you might even want to write a book about it. 
one of the main one of the main things that has sort of gotten in the way of gotten in the way of making progress in studying the morphology of different languages is that we inherited a system that focused on separating units from each other and that turned into it turned into the idea of a a morpheme now that that's a word that at this point almost causes me physical pain to say <laughs> because <laughs> yes this is the, this is the key here the morpheme what is a morpheme and is a morpheme i cannot i cannot deny that for a lot of the study of language structure it's not a bad idea to talk about parts of words you run into problems if your job is to or if you conceive of your job as to go in and exhaustively break up all the pieces and say this means this much and this means this much you're already in trouble when you look at a word like um that's a good word here mice okay mm-hmm. which which is plural, but it doesn't have a suffix on it. You say, well, which part means mouse and which part means plural? And someone might say, well, you just take the the I sound out of the middle there, then you're left with mus, which means mouse somehow. No, it doesn't. You know, it doesn't mean mouse. The whole thing means mouse and the relationship between ow in the singular and i in the plural that's the whole pattern right there it's not right. something you can just chop off and what's left is a meaningful piece it's not and so it's you need to have at the very least a theory that's got more than one tool in the toolbox cuz you know what they always say if all you have is a hammer yeah. every you know everything is a nail and so i would like to have a toolbox with a couple of options in it because language seems to need a couple of options. So uh, just to clarify real quick, um, so it's it's the problem uh, with the theory itself that's that's so big on, on your mind right now is that it's, it's not useful enough. It doesn't have enough things to to use. If, if, if the theory is the toolbox, there's only the hammer in there. Um, and I wanted to ask you really quick, do you have uh, any kinds of issues just using the word morphine to describe the unit that within that context applies this change on a fundamental level to a word. So like, I, I totally understand what you're saying and I totally agree, but I guess the the violent reaction of, to the word morpheme to some modern uh, people that study this was um, was sort of baffling to me. Like it can't be reapplied or it doesn't, it's not important or something. Well, it's kind of a, well, I, I like to, I like to think of it as something that is, I guess what I like to say is that that the the morpheme is is a cognitive epiphenomenon. It's Mm -hmm. It's something that your mind can see sometimes, and then it happens often enough that you think it's there all the time if you just sort of squint your eyes and look harder. The theory was built on prefixes, suffixes, and roots, like I said before, on things you can separate and put together. You know, what do you say about if, if the only way that you can make words change is by putting pieces on the edges and then see what happens, then you're obliged to say foolishness like you turn man into men by putting a mystery suffix at the end because that's where plural s goes. So when you don't get that, something has to go there. You put a magic suffix on it, that turns an a into an e in that case, but it turns an ow into an i for mouse and mice, and it, it turns an u into an i for 
woman women it does right. all you know and then you say is that one really super magic suffix or is that three different parallel magic suffixes i said i don't have time for a whole new Exactly. No, I, I totally get it. Because at that point, it's becoming a little, a little bit Harry Potter for me. Like, it, if if you, if you have a zero morpheme that you attach, that it changes everything about the the way the word behaves and the way it looks and the way it's pronounced. Uh, it's not just I'm adding this morpheme and then magic happens. So there's got to be a little bit more nuanced way to describe that, right? Well, I mean, it's it's really kind of slippery because at the very, you know, I don't, I have zero tolerance for zero morphemes but i you know i, I i'm 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 copywriting that or trademarking it or maybe <laughs> maybe both but i'll buy the shirt y'all good that's good um the idea is at least with man men if you put a, a zero on it something happens but in the case of sheep sheep singular plural nothing at all happens there's there's nothing added, there's nothing altered, but by the same logic, if you need to add something, then you have to have added something. And the tool in the you know, the tool in the affix right. toolbox is I added a zero. And I just it's just too much fantasy land for me to say that that okay. is the only way we do things. So that's why that's why I, I'm suggesting that Morphology is about the way we mark relationships between words by whatever means. Sometimes it's by doing nothing. Hmm. So, you know. So That's would it. you say if so? Like I can get a greater understanding. Of this. So morphology, it, it sounds like you're saying is a, a wider umbrella, and it's not so much a subfield, but that that subfields fit within it. Because when you use sheep changing into sheep, and it, and nothing changed morphologically, but it, semantically it did. I, I guess what I'm asking is, what do we do with morphology? Like, what is is it something totally separate, or is it an, is it a wider umbrella away from some of the stuff that we're sort of more comfortable with? Ooh, I you know I don't want to get all megalomaniacal on it and say, <laughs> but it's easy to do it whenever you start dabbling around in the lexicon. Yeah. You say, oh, this is the key to the lexicon, and you know, sure, yeah, I'm not but, trying to bait you into sort of oh, like no, the, the no. missing link or anything. I was just sort oh, of no. curious. This, that's a great because like the sheep sheep example is really great for especially for people like me and the people listeners at home that illustrates that the way we talk about morphology on the show typically sort of bare bones we talk about oh you know morphology is the study of the smallest parts of a word that still carry meaning and that kind of thing um and whenever you do that we got sheep and right now that's the only part of the word that means something and it means two separate things depending on the context you know and it's 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 very difficult to convey that if they were to ask me something like that that's right because you start counting them you know, and not only do you fall asleep, but nothing ever right. happens to the noun. One sheep, two sheep, three sheep. What do you say to a little kid who says, "I saw four sheep"s? You you try to you, you try to stifle a laugh because oh, this right. this poor little kid just doesn't know. How could he? You know, given that. The <laughs> Given the rest of the language, you know, given that the rest of the language doesn't work that way, but then people get high and mighty about it because they know secret stuff, and you, you right. didn't you didn't see them screw up when they were little, so now they can just ha ha. If you knew Whoa. the language, you would know that that's exactly. one of the ones that doesn't do that. It's like we're sitting here like berating people that use totally predictable grammatical sort of rules. So if you said something like sheep's, that 
logically speaking, seems just fine and dandy. And kids do it all the time, right until they start learning language. They acquire language perfectly. I've known, five, you know, my five-year-old nephew that will use, I went to the store, but that as soon as they start kind of learning the rules that they're you're, that you're teaching them, the corrections, then they'll start messing up and say, I goad, because they hear that ED. That's right. They've seen enough evidence that now they have a rule instead of a memorized chunk. Right. So, so berating people for using uh, uh, sort of uh, using sort of trying trying to learn structure as opposed to just acquiring chunks. Right. So that's something to keep in mind. Also, is that maybe realize what's going on. You know. And it's it's learners of all ages. It's not just a kid thing because you can't sure, say second language speakers too. Right. You, know. you can't say oh the you know uh, kids don't know anything. I mean I don't quote me on that. But you, you can't just you can't blame kids it. Kids know minimal things, right? You, you, you can't blame it on their youth. You got you just have to say they are what they're doing is they are using logic. They're using analogy. They're the same way that you separate things out in your world to know that this is one of these and that's one of those. That same logic applies to word categories and then you figure out oh where what are the rules that i can follow and play the odds and usually i'm right that's a Mm -hmm. a plural s and a past tense ed for english you know that those are the those are the big money bets and that's why once you get into the language a bit you start saying oh give them a new word they'll do this with it that you know that's the 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 famous wug test that they do with kids you know why is it the little kids who haven't had a a day of school can tell you here's a new word this is a wug here are two of them what do you call that two wugs they don't even try uh to to weeg they don't try a vowel switch like man men they don't try that they try the one that they see happening all the time right and who can blame them and that's right you know yeah and yeah no it's and and i'm so sorry tom i didn't mean to interrupt you but the wugs example is so illustrative on every component because not only are you using morphology as an example saying like oh gosh you know they don't change that to weeg they also use the correct phonotactic constraint there Absolutely. they actually they they which and phonotactic constraint is just uh the rules that a lot what a sound is allowed within a given uh area like so if you say wug uh you can't have s sounds after g sound in english normally it's very difficult so you can't say wug or something like that and, um and they don't try yeah. wuggus they don't do that, wuggus, that right exactly and and so asking why they don't change it to uh, weeg or wugs or wugus or something like that is is sort of the component that we're trying to get across to the folks at home that haven't studied language science is that what's what's going on in the brain that's allowing them to just do this stuff and why are we saying that it has in especially in morphologies guys why are we trying to count affixes why are we trying to count suffixes and prefixes no when really what we need to be considering is uh, is patterns what what wugs is or better what uh what dogs is as a word is a representative of the noun dog and a representative of the idea plural and together they're realized as dogs and there are two separable parts but you can compare them to dog by itself you can compare it to logs and you can see oh okay these things work this way and you you have evidence for separable parts you know sometimes it works that way and sometimes it doesn't what really get, gets under my skin if i may is mm-hmm. that is that uh, the language i've been researching now for 
30. Don't tell me it's Sanskrit. Thir- no, no, that's not okay. as much there. Uh, Scottish I Gaelic. I love that. Oh, good. Even better. Yeah, Scottish Gaelic I've been working on for 30 years now. What I really enjoy about that language as a linguist is initial mutation. What's going on there is what what is odd and irregular in English, like we said, with tooth, teeth, and mouse, mice, and all of this. Right, sure. All those alternations. And those are irregular because they're sort of a, a real minority of words work that way in English. So we can marginalize it, say you just memorize that stuff. The rule is for the S plural and the ED past. And this other stuff's not really a rule. It's just something you memorize because it's not predictable. Uh, right. But, but, but you get to a language like Gaelic or any of the Celtic languages and they're going to town on alternations between singular and plural present and past and all the different cases and numbers and tenses these are all represented by consonant changes so hmm. that yeah so that um for example let me see um the word for play if i was going to to tell you to play you're going to start the band up i'm going to say play i'll say cluich in scottish gaelic cluich but if i'm going to say he played, I'm going to say I change a, a k to a ch in the back of the mouth. And this is systematic. This is anything that starts with a k, any verb that starts with a k, any noun that starts with a k, has a related grammatical form that starts with a ch. And this is something wow. that is all okay. over the language. And it's not something you could possibly memorize. You don't, why memorize it? It's everywhere. What's weird in Gaelic, and and weird is a relative term. What's fantastic about Gaelic? <laughs> well, what is less prevalent in Gaelic is suffixes. That's sure. less. That's less prevalent. And so, either if adding pieces is regular and switching sounds around is irregular, well, then the Celtic languages just do morphology wrong. Yeah, they just That's, don't get it. They, they don't, don't get, get it, Tom. They don't get it. And, you know, and so, I mean, somebody who's really cagey would say, well, that's why these are endangered languages, because they're doing oh, morphology. Oh, no. <laughs> don't you dare. No. Not on my course. podcast. Okay. Not no. I, of course, I would not say that. I have a, I have a, 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 dis- <laughs> a, a, a dissertation and more invested in the fact that this is legitimate business. But, oh, heck yeah, man. But the, um, the idea is if either the language is wrong or the theory is not adequate. That's why I, coming from this position where I want to say clearly this works as a language, all the stuff you do running psycholinguistic tests, children acquiring language, they can acquire a system just like this on with the same age pacing that they can acquire a system that works with affixes. There's nothing inherently weird about this. It's just un-English. And so, hey, get over it. There are, there are many languages no. that are un-English. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a, you know what? It's so funny is that that's, that is the key. What I hear a lot, especially with whenever, as I'm trying to advocate anything linguistic, any, it doesn't matter what component with it. I don't ever talk about morphology. So it's, it's, it's hilarious that this stuff still comes up because ultimately what it comes down to is that if it's not your 
language, then it is uh, wrong if it doesn't behave that way. And it comes to just being proprietary towards things that you culturally identify with. It, you know, it's just a two-way street, and I get that. But it doesn't mean that it's useful to keep that sort of archaic train of thought. And it's verifiably untrue because we can show it via linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> See, that, and that, that's it. I mean, I think one of the things that really – it's not just about, about keeping endangered languages alive. It's about – the the argument goes should go deeper if if linguistics is a science of language then you can't throw out the data that doesn't match the theory right you know you can you can choose not to talk about it but it doesn't go away the, you know well, that's very bad science Tom, to throw away course. data that doesn't match i mean like if you oh my god i exactly. mean abandon the science totally if we're going to act like that and i've i've read a few papers that make me want to rip my hair out when they come to uh, the way they approach um, quantitative data especially with regard to things like morphology uh, it blows my mind well imagine if you're in a chemistry lab and every time the the reaction doesn't turn out the way you predict you dump it down the drain and do it again until it does and you exactly. say see yeah, this isn't biased at all. It's it's bad. That that's a very bad way to do science. So for, for the kids at home, don't do science that way. Always mm -hmm. test against your hypothesis. Do the logical opposite of your hypothesis and try to prove that. You know, I when when I'm teaching, I always know that students are starting to get it when they start looking for counterexamples. As yes. soon, as soon as you say this is always true, and you see them start looking up at this guy this way, that way, and they say, "But what about this one?" And they have a counterexample, even if it's not a true counterexample, but if it's a good challenge, they're thinking like a linguist at that point. Yes, if absolutely. all if all they're doing is writing down what I say or you know repeating what they've read, eh, we're we're still working on it. But once yeah. once you get this sort of almost reflex to go for the counterexample, that's when they're coming through. That's when it's starting to make sense. Absolutely. It's specifically with regard to what we can take home mm. from morphology. What what do we need to know about morphology? That any word you're going to use has to have some way of interacting with the grammatical environment you're going to plug it into. And once mm -hmm. you do that, you might have to alter the form of it to fit the position you're going to put it into. And so you say, okay, this word that I'm going to use, I'm going to have to alter it this way or that way because of this and because of that. The knowledge you have of words goes far beyond the what the word means and how it's pronounced. You also have to know where it can go and what can happen to it in different contexts. And from the perspective of, you know, I can't pronounce the whole word if I haven't taken into consideration what's going to happen to it morphologically. What's going to happen to it? Do I need to add something? Do I need to subtract something? You know, before I go too far down that, that stretch, sure, sure. one of the main things that has really sort of changed the way I've, I've looked at morphology is not only the fact that the, the bias toward affixes makes us say foolish things about the rest of language, but making our rules about changing one thing into another thing or actively dynamically building sentences. I think one of the main things you got to know about the patterns of morphology, it's not really about what we're actively building. Take, take it for a second and say, how are the words related? Take it out of your own busy head mm -hmm. doing language just for a second because you're going to have to go back and do that again. But take it out of there for a minute and say, sure. okay, how are these words related? Put them there. Compare them to each other. You say, okay, 
So this difference in meaning correlates with this difference or non-difference in form. And then you're learning what the patterns are. For example, students of any, of any age, but in particular little kids who are taking it in primarily by ear, they're hearing entire words. They're not sure. hearing a prefix, pause, a root, pause, a right. suffix. Right, that's very they're, salient. They're not, they're not getting those breaks. And so they're hearing in, entire words, and so that's what they're matching. That's what they're playing with cognitively. And they're saying, oh, okay, compare, contrast, what's going on here? I've seen that before. It happens over here too. And then you can use these, you can use these patterns. So that's the main idea that that um, it's it's not just about little uh, a factory assembling language, or you know, or the, the way your mouth pronounces one sound after another. It's not only that, and morphology isn't primarily either of those things. It's mm-hmm. how are words similar and different, and what what you know what resources do we have to indicate these differences. So that I can tell that this word's related to that word, but it's not exactly the same. That's fascinating, Tom. Thank you. And okay. it's very illustrative and salient too. Uh, that couple of those couple things you said here um, about in regard to affixes. Um, but okay. what I wanted to uh, ask you is, what is the first? What would you say would be the first step to changing how we teach morphology? Make, making making the case for a, a a touring morphology circuit, I guess, would be good there, but. Um, yeah, it's we it's can a start a Patreon for that one. So yeah, hey, go for it. But the I think the thing that you need there is to say, okay, if you're using just the just the same tools that you use to make sentences to make words, you're going to run up against a wall because there are some things that don't work the same way. And the same thing on the other side for phonologists doing morphology, if all you're focusing on is making the sounds work out okay. You're really not explaining the why. You're not explaining where, right. this, where this comes from. You're just making it pronounceable, which is valuable, but it's not the core of what morphology is about. So, right. And it's not the whole truth either. It's, it's no. you're giving you – know, so that's, that's the important thing is that mm-hmm. science is not desi- – I mean it's, it's designed to find the truth in increments, and I understand that. And there's a lot of people that would be upset with it saying, oh, well, science doesn't answer why. It answers how. I I'm I don't I don't think I'm that uh, prescriptive of how science should work, and I think that if there's a truth to be found out there, then we can sort of describe it better. Especially if there's surface level evidence for it, we shouldn't just say, "Well, you know, here's how it should work." Mm. Oh yeah, that's well, I think that's bizarre. <laughs> no, that's that's playing games with yourself. But the uh, yeah, no, I would say that uh, I you know, and I I don't even mean the why because I you know I I, I right, know better yeah. than. But before we even get to the how, we we need to be very clear on the what, you know? Exactly, especially with the, with regard to morphology. Yes, um, you know, and that's why I wanted to sort of dial it back from saying all of the what's are pieces that you can manipulate. And say, well, no, no. The, the what is the patterns that you can use to relate words to each other, and that involves something more than prefixes and suffixes. And I'm, right. you know, I'm very surface oriented as well. I'm, I don't, like I said, I don't, all of the mystical behind the scenes, you know, I'm just has to be right before it comes out my mouth. You know, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> that's not that, that's not that bad. I don't think that's a difficult way to think. Yeah. That's, you know, but you, you want to explore, but you don't want to fantasize. That's the idea. Right. And, yeah. 
and so the if you have too many moving parts if you have too much of your theory that's not visible that's not detectable that's not observable then really the burden is on you to right. you know to come up with something that somebody could potentially disprove and sure. it's it's very hard to directly do, disprove a zero right and if you have the same morpheme forgive mm-hmm. me if you have the okay. same little affix or same piece no, no. of a word that looks exactly the same but has like 42 different meanings in a list i think actually uh, david peterson posted a blog on this uh, mm-hmm. after we discussed this um and he sort of illustrated he had like a bunch of different morphemes and said now if you have to go through and explain why all of these exact same morphemes are different because of the zero morph connected to them then I've, there's too many moving parts essentially just exactly what you were saying it's like it's very it, you should be skeptical of something that has way too many uh one word answers you know well i'm i'm glad that you brought it back to that because that's the kind of thing that sort of forces the issue there there's a there is an approach to morphology that is very contrary to the morpheme approach and this is what you we call the, the separation hypothesis okay. the idea that at a very fundamental level you have the the meanings and functions you need to express and on the other hand you have the the various operations the formal operations that you can perform to express them and so instead of making tying them together tightly the way we do with uh, talking about a past tense morpheme that is ed and as soon as i do that then i have the problem with sing and sang and ride and rode and all of these somehow they get to be past tense but they don't use an ed or do i add a magic stop it okay but, <laughs> but you know instead of saying well i definitely have past and the evidence around the language tells me i can i can register this past several different ways there are different operations and different verbs pattern with these different operations and so what i need to know as a language user what are my resources and what grammatically is going to be demanded of me for any verb i'm going to have to use it in the past tense sometimes so i need to have a form available i cannot boil that down to a single form for all verbs so i'm going to have the same bit of meaning i need but I need to have a couple different ways to represent it in the grammar. If if we say these things are separate, then we don't have all of these all these homophonous affixes or mm-hmm. we don't have all these synonymous affixes. The, all these problems where you have the things that sound the same but mean different things or they are pronounced differently but they all mean the same thing. Exactly, right. It's, you know, so like for example in, in English we have a suffix i'll say a suffix we have a we have an oper- operation which is suffix er okay right okay perfect all right and i can use that for at least two different purposes i can put it on a verb to create a noun that is somebody who does that verb like baker reader writer i can get an er and put it on a verb make a noun but i can also take that er suffix and i'm saying right now just as a pure operation add er to a base and put it on a good number of adjectives and i can get a stronger comparative version of that adjective like big right. bigger high higher do i have two er suffixes well yes 
are they two different operations? No, not really. I have an operation that I can use to mark two different things in the grammar. Two very different things. Oh, I fact. see. So it comes from the back end a little bit, like the way you're describing it. Yeah, okay. Great. Yeah, so instead of saying each of these things is a unit of meaning and form, well, I've got meanings, I've got forms, and I've got rules that put them together. And that's kind of radically not morphemic. <laughs> yeah. But, but what it does is it accounts for pretty much, it gives you a way to talk about all the patterns. Without. Right, and it, yes, perfectly, because it gives you it get like so. You answered my question, so I'm convinced. It, it, it convinced. It didn't. It doesn't take much to to do that with me, especially on this issue, because I was pretty open open to anybody who could convince me uh, about morphology. But that illustrates sort of my primary concerns. Is like how do we account for you know affixes and but also um, explain better than the current surface level morphology and i think that coming at it from that perspective where you have operations uh separate is is, is solid I, th- I like that quite a bit well you know i i got you have to anticipate sort of the pushback on that and you say oh all right if in that system all the different possible operations are equal then why do we have so many affixes in the world and i said oh, oh. wow that's a historical question you know sure. That's a historical question because anybody who speaks any language can potentially learn one of these patterns, and there are lots of languages that do some of each. A little more of this, a little less of that, but there are lots of affixes. That has to do with the history of where affixes came from, and that's gradually words wearing down, getting hooked on to other words, and that's that's where most affixes came from. Right, and that's that's very that's a very bizarre pushback because to me it did not register as relevant um, because it would and I get may, maybe I get on the surface somewhere where someone might ask that but to me I would say that well that's due to just sort of individual interaction and linguistic change over time you know it's just word sounds change and we keep some and some don't and it's just that it seem, that one seems a little bit more surface to me and not relevant but either well, way maybe I'm well face. well let's let's put it this way okay. If you have a theory of morphology and you have exactly one operation or maybe with two subtypes, prefix and suffix, that is a very restrictive theory. You know, that's one that's right. It's very easy to falsify that kind of theory because it, it's either this or it's that or it's not what you're talking about. But because there are tons of examples that tell you you can't just have prefixes and suffixes, well, then you need to enrich the range of things you can do. Sure. And so as soon as you start enriching the range of things you can do, that's where the pushback comes because you're making oh, I see. you're making your theory more powerful. And once you give a theory too much power, it's indistinguishable from magic. <laughs> you know? You're right. And so that and so the idea is, okay, I want to say there are more kinds of operations in the system, but I at least have to recognize I have I have to recognize that a lot of morphological work is done with affixes. And so when I set out for myself that I want to be a morphologist, I want to be a Celtic morphologist, I want to be a Scottish Gaelic morphologist, and that forces me to a position that hyper-focuses on what happens to initial consonants in words – when the rest of the world and the rest of morphology doesn't so much worry about that, 
perhaps I see it as something very, very important, and that is my sort of personal parochial bias. But at the same time, if this is something that happens in a language, then a theory, a linguistic theory, has to be able to handle it as a potential way for a language to be in the world. Right, such as science, you know, that's the point. I think so. I think so. So I don't mind being a minority of a minority of a minority. What I'm working on still has something to say, and it says you can't take that easy option out. It's got to be more than you can do in like two pages of an introductory linguistic textbook. There's more to morphology than that, and the stuff that Mm -hmm. isn't affixes is not inherently weird. That's beautiful. What very well put, Tom. Thanks so much for talking to us about that. Uh, what I'd like to do is actually transition you over mm-hmm. to a segment we like to call the morphologically interesting word of the day. Okay. Um, and it's you typically where I give a word that I find morphologically interesting. But now that I've been converted and uh, <laughs> had an, a, a multiple epiphanies, um, I'd like for you to give me a really morphologically cool sort of um, uh, Scottish Gaelic word and kind of explain to me why you think it's that way. When you talk about English and you say irregular verbs in English, there are dozens of them, okay? And they're very popular verbs like um, like write and wrote and written and give sure. and gave and um, sing and sang where you have these changes. And we're able to keep them that way because these are very frequent verbs. A verb that doesn't work mm-hmm. that way is probably going to get – quote unquote fixed. It's going to end up that the root stays the same and it's going to adopt one of the suffix markers. When someone is talking about Scottish Gaelic, one of the one of the selling points is it's only got 10 irregular verbs. <laughs> that sounds great. You know, when you're looking at English and you've got hundreds and you say this only got well a couple hundred. But in Gaelic you've <laughs> only got 10 irregular verbs, but you know, what I'm saying with irregular verbs in English, you know, give and gave and uh, take and took, where you have just these little changes, nothing too radical. The verbs that we're talking about irregular in Gaelic are what we call suppletive. It means the different forms are based on different roots. And so they're as different from each other as go and went, okay, right. where go go is the present and went is the past. So – in uh, it, for I'm thinking of the Gaelic word, um, uh, the Gaelic word for sea, which is feichkin. If you want to say, I saw, the verb form there is chunik. Holy cow! So dramatically, totally different. different. And you want to say, in the future, I will see. You have a little tiny verb, he, which is different. Hmm. And then if you say, okay, I saw, I, I will see. You could say, he, me. But if you have to negate that, make it negative, you would say, han eich, me, where han is the negative and the eich is the part that's related to he, but it doesn't sound like it. Wow. It's, it sounds back like feichkin, except without the F on it. I mean, it's it's a nice example of yeah that's insanely good morphology <laughs> morphologically <laughs> interesting word of the day <laughs> you know and so there there you go that this is there's irregular and anyone who complains to you about oh all these irregular verbs in english i said oh please okay oh gosh no so on the, did you say two things there's two things oh yeah so the the gaelic boosters i count myself among them will temporarily say there are only 10 irregular verbs 
but boy, are they irregular. Okay. <laughs> right. No, that, that's that's that actually reminds me so much. Like I I was into languages before I was into uh, linguistics formally, and it was so funny because I'd, I'd been studying French for like eight years, um, and then it took me before I st- um, got into linguistics to realize that the Doctor Mrs. Vandy Tramp and um, like the 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 etra verbs mm-hmm. in French are just all unaccusative, which is mm-hmm. what motivates the etra. And I was like, it was it blew my mind um, that that was was motivating because they just tell you they just are. You know, and oh, it, this, that's, that's kind of what just happened to me. So, and and it's so unsatisfying to somebody who's got sort sure. of that, that linguistic impulse. It's like that cannot be the reason. You know, right? If, if it happened, it can't just be. Yeah, no. And then you say if, it, you know, but but you just don't have the tools to, you know, you don't have the tools to sort of unpack the truth. Uh, the truth of the matter is also in terms of teachers. Oh, there's. There's not enough. There's not enough linguistics in language pedagogy, from no, right. from my biased opinion. There's not enough. There could be more. And this is another one of those breakdowns between areas uh, areas of study that are intimately related on one level, but are practically divided in terms of institutions and training. That there is so much that that linguistic theorizing can find for you and can explain stuff like what you just said about unaccusatives sure but in mm, or, in, yeah in order i don't to, know if un- i should retroactively no yeah, you got sorry yeah. no but in order to un- unpack what you mean by unaccusative nobody's got time for that in the when someone right. especially when someone is trying to learn a language for a very practical purpose rather than study a language for with some reflectiveness and saying, but what if, and what about, and why not? All of those bigger questions that people being introduced to the language typically don't have time for. Right. No, I'm, I'm right there with you. And then, and then just to, I was going to just say, just to very, very quickly unpack what I mean by unaccusative. I don't know if I've mentioned that on the podcast yet, but in this, in this context, unaccusative just means a verb that takes a subject that doesn't have a semantic doer or agent. It, it's, it acts, it is acted upon and things like arrive. So if you, if you say I arrive in English, you, your subject is I, but there really is no agent. You're, you arrived, but you didn't arrive something. If that makes sense. <laughs> so it's yeah, it's not that you you arrived an, uh, like a yourself. It's an action happened to you, but grammatically we had to fill that spot. So that's what I mean by unaccusative verb, and that happens in French too. Mm-hmm. But you know, Tom, that that's this has been super enlightening and super interesting to me. As a matter of fact, and I know everybody at home sitting there just like, well, I don't know what to believe anymore. My views on morphology were crushed, crushed today. Well. Fortunately, probably most people didn't have a view of morphology, so they can just—they can just plug this in directly. They're, right. they're, hey, hey, that's best case scenario for sure. <laughs> no, Tom, I was going to ask you what's um actually. Can you talk to us a little bit about your book, what it's called, where we can get it? I know we can get it on Amazon for sure. That's yeah. where most people are shopping online for those bad boys nowadays. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's it. It it's contemporary morphological theories, a user's guide, and this book. It grew out of my own needs when I was trying to work with how do I figure out the best way to talk about, and this was when I was doing my dissertation, the best way to talk about Scottish Gaelic consonant changes as something morphological. Because the the morphological theory that you get, the garden variety morphological theory, is basically about putting chunks together 
and and that's just not going to work. And so I can describe how the sounds change, but that doesn't tell me why they change or, you know, it doesn't predict for me where they're going to change. It just allows me to describe the different sounds. And that's, you know, you have to do that to get it right, but that doesn't, it's a very surface explanation. It doesn't tell you the work that it's doing. So to get right back to it, the challenge that my committee put to me was like, okay, you don't like the regular morphological theory to handle that. Let's see, take a look look out there, see what the market is for competing morphological theories, see which one best suits your purposes, which one, if any, and what that means is if I can't find a good one, I'm going to have to make one. And it's, oh, please let me find one. But anyway, <laughs> oh, God, yeah. so in, in the end, uh, as starting as an exercise to answer that one question about, about Gaelic, I started building a bibliography of competing theories in morphology, and I got up to about 15 named theories that are trying to one degree or another to help us account for relationships among words. And some of them are more about how the pieces fit together, some of them are more about how the sounds work, and some of them are more about how words fit in, like, tables so that you can see singular, plural, first person, second person, third person. What are the relationships? It's not about building individual words. It's about showing how related words really fit together in patterns. And so I think that what I did there was I, I went through First, I got familiar with all these different theories because, you know, due diligence and all that. And then I said, okay, now I've got a nice basic idea, basic description, and a basic bibliography for all of these different theories. Now I need to run them through their paces. And so mm -hmm. I said, okay, I've got this problem in Scottish Gaelic. Who can handle it? And so one by one by one, I went through and said, okay, what would this theory do faced with this problem? And so that gave me a number of different approaches to handling the kind of morphology that isn't about prefixes and suffixes. Now, that's not the whole story. That's a special interest to me. So when I, when I started building toward this idea of making it a book, and this book is on the one hand a reference guide for people who want to learn a lot about morphology quickly, but it, so it can, be, it can be a textbook, it can be a reference book. It's built that way. I had it not only this business in Scottish Gaelic, but there's also an interesting pattern that happens in the in the Georgian language, where there are two different prefixes, at least, that should both appear in a particular form of the word, and you only get one and not the other, and there's no independent reason why. And so I take this, which is a long-standing puzzle. Lots of people have tried their hand at it. And some theories have something to say about it, some don't, but they each take a crack at it. And the last thing sure. is, is in Sanskrit, as you mentioned. There we go. Yeah. There we go. Because that is a morphologist dream. What's going on in Sanskrit, it is just a – it's beautiful. And what we have going on in Sanskrit, it's, it's the kind of thing that will make you either run or just step in with both feet because, <laughs> you know, that it's – it's, it's really very attractive if what you are interested in doing is talk about how related words uh, show their relatedness. And so 
Um, I'm not going to work all that out. I'll leave it for folks who are super interested to, you know, check out uh, chapter three, subsection three. I'll just, you know where to find that. Um, Absolutely. There are certain classes of verbs that have a whole special suffix, but only if they have a certain kind of prefix at the other end of the word. That's not supposed to happen. Distant, mm-hmm. distant sensitivity of choices in, in prefixes and suffixes, those choices are supposed to be very local. It's supposed to be this one affects its neighbor, not this guy at the beginning affects that guy at the end. That's, that's a puzzle too. And so I ran it through all these different, uh, these different theories to say who's got a story. And that one is particularly interesting because there are some phono- phonological reasons for what's going on and there are also uh, hierarchical explanations for why there's a dependency from one end of the word to the other. So I don't know that anything is solved, but at least now you have a couple different ways to look at it. And so anybody who finds themselves either on purpose or because they got some assignment in, in, in linguistics class needing a way to talk about morphology, you've got a buffet here. And, there we go. And I'm happy to share. What so, else you got going on, Tom? The the thing that that I would most want to tell uh, tell the listeners or the folks at home, I would <laughs> I would want to mention that this summer, being uh, every two summers, let's put it this way, every two summers, the Linguistic Society of America, the Professional Association of Linguists, the LSA, has a a month long summer institute for linguists and linguists in training that people who are undergraduates, graduates, and practicing linguists, whether they're faculty members or in some other part of life, uh, get together at a, at a university campus and it rotates around. This summer, it's going to be close to where I am. It's going to be over at the University of Kentucky in Lexington. I'm going to be leading a class that's called Non-Concatenative Morphology. And if what's a better name than that, right? Oh, my goodness. Tom, well, you know, I just want to reiterate our thanks for you coming out and talking to us a little bit about morphology. I know that most of us were anxious and on the edge of our seats to uh, get that clarified for us. And I absolutely and honestly, it, it's it's been a learning experience for me and I, I'm, I feel enlightened and I appreciate you coming out and talking to us. Hey, thank you for the invitation. It's great. I really appreciate the opportunity. I hope you can see that there's really not much I like talking about more. So, uh, oh, well, join the club. So. It's, it's great. It's great to have this chance. Thanks. Oh, absolutely. And until next time, listeners, we'll see you.